I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Religion. We can reinterpret the secular as meaning not something that is completely impervious and resistant to all forms of the sacred, but rather as something holy. And that gets rid of this awful division we have in our world. You know, you're either this or you're that. You're a militant atheist. There can be no God, no divine, no sacred, no spiritual. You know, that's all kind of backward, regressive childhood thinking. Or else the contrary, this kind of dogmatic theism. You know, we have the truth and anybody who doesn't see it, well, I'm sorry. And, and so there has to be a crisscrossing between those two hostile positions, it seems to me. Religion in recent years has been something of a battlefield. On the one hand, books with titles like God is Back or, more alarming, The Revenge of God have dramatized the increased influence of fundamentalist forms of religion. On the other, the writers sometimes called the New Atheists have railed against religion in a spirit that some have called secular fundamentalism. British evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins leads the way here with his claim that religion is a brain disease. But others, like the late Christopher Hitchens, have also contributed to this revival of the old opposition between religion and enlightenment. Richard Carney would like to get past all this. To him, it's a sterile polarization. He'd like to move on to a conversation in which doubt and faith in his words, crisscross. Richard Carney is a poet, a novelist, and a philosopher who writes about the role of imagination in religious belief. He's professor of philosophy at Boston College and a visiting professor at University College Dublin in his native Ireland. He's the first of five thinkers we'll be presenting in a new series by David Cayley called After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Here's David Cayley. In a book called The Gay Science, published in 1882, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche presents a parable in which a madman questions the people he meets about the seeming absence of God. Did God lose his way like a child, he asks one. Has he gone on a voyage, he asks another. Is he hiding? or afraid of us. Then, Nietzsche says, the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. I will tell you, he cries, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? The madman goes on in this vein, and then, in the end, realizes that his listeners cannot at all grasp what he is saying. I have come too early, he concludes. The deed is done, but the implications remain unrecognized, the consequences unthought, and almost unthinkable. Nietzsche's story presents the death of God as an event, it's not just the discovery that there's no divine daddy. It's an active overcoming of God. The murderers have blood on their hands, and their deed is much more significant than they dare to admit. Indeed, 
It's a threat to the very possibility of significance, the wiping away of the horizon, something that will reverberate far into the future as the implications come home. Nietzsche wasn't the beginning of atheism. There were atheist schools of philosophy in ancient Greece and in Rome. There were atheists among the philosophers of the Enlightenment, though not so many as their opponents claimed. But Nietzsche is more recognizably our contemporary. He describes atheism not just as a question of belief, an opinion about the nature of things, but as an event that has overtaken an entire civilization, a happening experienced in the depths of the psyche. But how is this event to be understood? Is it the end of religion or an episode in the continuing history of religion? Richard Carney sees atheism as part of religion. In a new book called Anatheism, Returning to God After God, he explores the possibility of a religious practice that includes and embraces the absence of God. He tries to get beyond a simple opposition between theism and atheism by incorporating both as moments of a faith that can comprehend the event Nietzsche describes rather than turning away from it. He calls this stance Anna, A-N-A, theism. I visited him recently at his home in suburban Boston, renewing a friendly acquaintance that had begun a few years earlier when I presented several programs on his thought for ideas under the title, The God Who May Be. I asked him first how he had coined this new name. When I was reading Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Jesuit poet, I came across a phrase of his in one of his journals when he was describing the poetic process and he called it aftering. He said, when I come through a dark night of the soul and I have this sense of abandonment and despair and despondency, he said, when I come out of that, I sometimes have this extraordinary sense of epiphany about things and simple things, you know, dappled, uh, speckled things, as he says, you know, the kind of the glory of the everyday. And what I do, he says, when I then begin to write poetry, when I feel it coming, coming on, is I find myself going back over and over and over and over the experience of that epiphany. Having experienced everything as no thing, you come back to things and you feel them and see them and touch them and taste them and hear them as Adam did on the first day of creation. So it's the idea of the God of little things that comes back after the, the, the no thing, you know, the, the death of God, this returning after and then the after and the aftering in the poetic process of repeating the past, but repeating it forward. It now has a new promise, a new life. And uh, that kind of reminded me of Keats's notion of negative capability. He said, when you feel in mystery, uncertainty and doubt without the least hankering after fact and reason. And that, for me, is the essence of the atheistic moment at the heart of what I call anatheism, which is the return to a second faith, uh, what Paul Ricoeur would call a second naivety, what Auden calls uh, believing again. Uh, not still believing, you know, what we always believed, but believing again. Now, you can only believe again, and the Greek for again is ana, right, as in anamnesis, to remember, that's 
sort of what I'm trying to get at in Hopkins and through Hopkins and Keats. And then a third reference for me is, is um, Patrick Kavanagh, who was an Irish poet who came after Yeats. And at one point he had an experience in a hospital in Dublin. He'd come through a very serious operation, pulmonary disease, and he had really been very close to death. Then he woke up in the ward and he looks out the window and he sees all these broken things down in the in the yard, you know, the bent ironwork of the gate and the gravel and the flotsam and jetsam floating by in the Dublin Canal. And he says, naming these things is the love act and its pledge to snatch out of time the passionate transitory, the passionate transitory that in the little things that pass, uh, happenstance, uh, transience, contingency, all those things that are normally seen as the opposite of the divine, in the, those very discarded, remaindered things, we find the divine. But for uh, Kavanagh, as for Keats and for Hopkins, it was after an experience of the loss of everything, or the near loss of everything, that they could believe again. So when we come back to the word Anna, this is a remembering, as in anamnesis, a remembering back that enables us to give a future to the past. So it's future-oriented, but it requires a step back from our everyday uh, attachments and addictions and presuppositions and prejudices, a step back from that into a kind of atheistic nothing, certainly an agnostic nothing, in order then to take a step forward. And if you look up the word Anna in the dictionary, uh, which I did before I wrote my book, Anatheism, Anna is the Greek prefix, but of course used in, in English in lots of words, anamnesis, anagogy, analogy, and so on and so forth. It means up, back, again, in space and time. So I like the space and time, right? It's concrete. And it's that you go up towards the sacred by going back into space and time, back into the earth, back into your body, back into the night. And then you have the again. So it's got that sense of up, back, and again, repeating forward. Nice. Do you see this as a societal as well as a personal movement? People speak yeah. and have spoken for 15 mm. or 20 years now of yeah. the return of religion. Yeah. yeah. You'll be familiar with the <clears throat> phrase. Sure. Is that germane? It is. I mean, I think there's two senses to the return of religion. One is quite derogatory a primitive or archaic return backwards to atavistic religion, you know, tribal religion. And this would be linked with fundamentalisms. So this would be a step back from the Enlightenment and a return to pre-Enlightenment darkness. So it's kind of those who have gone beyond religion confronted with those who've gone back to religion. On the other hand, there's another sense which would be a post-secular sense post-humanist sense of having experienced the death of God with Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, and so on, and the Enlightenment. So the disenchantment, desacralization, demythologization, demythification, all these words, you know, that you find being operated by many philosophers and theologians in the, in the 20th century. This basically acknowledged that in our society there was a flight of the sacred. And so... The return of the religious in this context is really a sort of post-religious return to religion. Having witnessed the death of God, there's then the question of what comes after the death of God. Is there a God that comes again? 
after the death of God, which doesn't mean some kind of new sci-fi God coming, you know, from the alien universe, some extraterrestrial. But it's the idea that the God that's coming to us from the future is also God that's promised in the past. And that return to religion is always a returning, uh, which never ends. You're always returning. You're always turning around again. It seems looking backwards, but looking backwards in order to look forwards or looking forwards and finding in what's coming towards you what has echoes of what has already been, but has been lost. Otherwise, we couldn't recognize it. So that's why Anna is important for me, not just as up and again, but as this retrieval of what has been. Anatheism, then, is a stance that recognizes the loss or death of God, but responds by reviewing and renewing tradition, what has been handed over from the past. It's not a proposal for a new spirituality, a word often used today to signify something distinct from religion. I'm spiritual, one hears, but not religious. But spiritual, in this sense, can sometimes mean nothing more than a kind of higher egotism, self-centeredness with a spiritual shine which allows me to ransack tradition for whatever appeals or enhances my self-esteem. Richard Carney is talking about religion, a word sometimes said to be derived from the Latin religare, which suggests a bond or a link. It's the link, it's the relation with something other than yourself. So it's the promise or possibility of a connection with something or someone that doesn't come from you. And in for instance, AA, what enables people almost miraculously to recover from addictions is when you recognize your helplessness, your, your nothingness in a way, and then you, you call to a higher power. Now, for me, the higher power is that something other than yourself. It's the link with something beyond yourself that enables you to save yourself from yourself. Yourself understood as egotism, narcissism, closure, to release the other in yourself which relates then to an open world, the, the open, to create the open. But we can't do that on our own. We need something else. So I think religion in the broadest sense is that link with something higher than ourselves. What um, William James called, you know, in, in, in varieties of religious experience, the more, that there's something more. And for me, the AA, in AA, although I didn't think of this when I wrote the book, is also the double A of Anna anatheism it's got the two A's so that double move that double dance if you will away from God and then back towards God uh, is something I think you find also in in a movement as basic and as practical and as earthy and as testimonial as uh, something like AA you know which is kind of going back to the old Quaker movement or the old primitive church you know people meeting around a table no money involved no contracts a sharing of pain and witness and then hope because it doesn't end in the room. The person who is cured then goes on to become a patron for other addicts. So it's this kind of endless reincarnation of the one who listens and opens you, kind of the Good Samaritan, endlessly. In your book, Anatheism, you develop a number of different themes as to how God returns and the, the, one of the first is in the person of the stranger. Yeah. Can I ask you about that? 
Well, religion and the stranger, again, in a very broad sense, I was struck by the fact that all great religions begin with an inaugural moment of welcoming a stranger, but in a dramatic situation. And I mean, hailing myself from the Abrahamic tradition, the primal scene of Abrahamic religion is Abraham and his wife, Sarah, in a tent in the desert. And suddenly they see three strangers walking out of the blue. Uh, and they're coming towards them. And in any normal situation, this is a threat. Who are these people coming towards them? So there's a dilemma. Do you welcome the stranger or do you close your tent and get your weapons and whatever? Kill the stranger. And a decision is made. Uh, there's a wager at one point. Abraham and Sarah say, we'll welcome them. So Abraham rushes towards the strangers, uh, kneels at their feet and welcomes them to a meal. And in the breaking of bread and the sharing of a chalice of wine, the three men, the three strangers, are revealed as God. So God becomes God in and through the reception of food and wine. So it's the stranger knocking at the door or beckoning at the tent, in the case of Abraham under the Mamre tree, that inaugurates this religion, Judaism, the Abrahamic religion, which is ultimately an ethic of care for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, often forgotten in the litany of horrors committed by the same religion and other religions, in fact, all religions, which is the very forgetfulness of that inaugural moment of openness to the stranger. And what's interesting, I find, is that this moment, this inaugural moment of openness to the stranger as enemy or friend, and that's the, the call, but the acceptance of the enemy, the radical stranger enemy adversary, as a potential guest can convert the other into, into God. God converts in that moment of transubstantiation over food and wine. It's, it's, it's almost always in that context of a certain consecration. And then it, it leads to birth. Sarah, who's barren, has a child. Inaugural moment of Christianity, the Annunciation, Mary, who's virgin, has a child. So the impossible becomes possible. Sarah, Abraham's wife, is 98 years old at the time the strangers arrive and tell Abraham that she is to bear a child. Listening from inside the tent, she laughs at this impossible idea. But the visitors overhear her and say to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? These words are echoed in the scene from the Gospel of Luke that Christians call the Annunciation, the announcement of Christ's birth. The angel Gabriel appears to a young woman named Mary in the dusty provincial town of Nazareth and tells this virgin that she is to have a child. The story has been pictured by countless painters, poets, and musicians, but Richard Carney imagines something a little different than the typical scene. This guy knocks on the door, walks in, right? probably kind of good-looking. He doesn't have wings. I mean, we put the wings on later. <clears throat> that makes it easy to identify God, you know? I mean, but I'm sure Gabriel, or whatever he called himself before he was revealed as Gabriel, was, you know, just a stranger, came in off the street and promised to give Mary a child. Now, you know, under normal circumstances, you'd be pretty wary of a guy like that, right? But in the to and fro, 
Mary is reading, and in all pictures of the Annunciation, she's reading. There's a book and there's a lily. And the book, to me, is Mary reading the stories of her tradition. And she's reading the story of Abraham and Sarah receiving the strangers. And these inaugural and repeated moments of birth that continue the tradition. And so in this to and fro, she realizes that this person is the bringer of, of love, not death, not rape, but love and birth and rebirth. So she says, yes. I mean, first she says it's impossible. But then the stranger said, well, what's impossible to the human is possible to God, to some higher power, which is, of course, is exactly what happens in AA too, where it's precisely what is impossible, the cure for me, that becomes possible through the strangeness of something radically other. So it, it, I was then very struck by the fact that in the Gospels, to stay with the Christian tradition, the stranger is the hospes, is precisely the word and the figure that Jesus chooses to describe himself. When people say, but we didn't recognize you, who were you? You know, when it comes to the eschaton and the kingdom. And he said, I was the person in the street looking for f food and asking for water, right? Like the, the strangers in the desert. And you didn't give it to me or you did. But the word hospice is repeated five times in, in, in Matthew 25, five times. So he's hammering the message home. I was the stranger. In the passage Richard Carney is referring to here, Jesus is talking about the last judgment. He imagines the righteous saying to him, Lord, when did we give you food or visit you in prison or welcome you as a stranger? He answers, as long as you did it to anyone in need, to the least of these my brothers, he says, then you did it to me. Even after his death and resurrection, he appears as a stranger, unrecognized at first by his friends and disciples. Mary Magdalene, who meets him beside the empty tomb, mistakes him for the gardener. Some portrayals of the Trinity also draw on the idea of God as a stranger. The Trinity is the image by which Christians try to express the different aspects of the divine by distinguishing Father, Son, and Spirit. One of its most beautiful representations is by a Russian icon painter named Andrei Rublev. When Andrei Rublev in 1500, I think it was, was invited to create the canonical image of the Orthodox Eastern Russian Greek Church, as to what the Trinity was, what does he paint? Not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He paints the three strangers. And they become the three persons of the Trinity uh, as they sit around the chalice. And the chalice is, of course, the body and blood of Christ, uh, the bread and wine, and it's the bread and wine offered by Abraham and Sarah to the strangers. And that struck me in terms of the iconography and the imaginary of religion, very, very interesting, because it's always the poets and the painters that get this right. It's not really, I mean, the texts are just a few words, but it's in the poetic reimagining of those tiny little words, as Kierkegaard does, you know, when he takes three lines of, you know, Abraham and Isaac going to Mount Moriah and writes, you know, 200 pages. That's Kierkegaard at his most poetic. But in anatheism, I take three poets who 
reimagine the scene of the Annunciation. And then a number of painters, you know, particularly Botticelli's wonderful Cestelli Annunciation, where you've got Mary, one arm going forward towards the stranger and the other pulling back, her kind of body pulls back and yet an arm goes forward. So there's this toing and froing as she freely decides to accept or to refuse the hospice, the stranger who's walked into a room. So this is real drama. One of the poets who reimagines the scene of the Annunciation, the angel's visit to Mary, is the contemporary American poet Andrew Hudgens. He draws on the painting Richard Carney has just been describing by the early Italian Renaissance painter Sandro Botticelli. Botticelli, as Carney says, pictures Mary's ambivalence, making her head incline gracefully towards the stranger, while at the same time her body draws back. Botticelli, in his great pity, Hudgens says, lets Mary refuse, accept, refuse, and think again. And it's this alternation, the space for fear, reluctance, and doubt, as well as for gratitude, submission, and surprise, that is so crucial to Carney's conception of anatheism. That's the Anna, you know, accept, refuse. And it's this dance of yes and no, backwards and forwards, that's absolutely central to any genuine religion. Because then if you close off that dance of, of the two A's, you know, away from, abstention, and then the A of adventure, of going towards, you, you kill the divine. And you forget the primal inaugural scenes of the Abrahamic religion, the Christian religion. I don't have time to go into Islam, but, you know, Muhammad was faced with a strange voice. And he said yes to the voice, and then the voice spoke through him. But in all great wisdom traditions, you find this inaugural moment of the stranger. So it's in the littlest thing and the smallest person. In fact, it can be in the person you know best in the world, but it's precisely that part of them that you thought you knew, but you don't know. And as Rilke says, you know, genuine love is guarding over each other's solitude. And what's the solitude? It's that aspect in the person you've known for 50 years and think you know, but actually reveals itself as surprising. That's the divine. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today, we're beginning a new series called After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion by David Cayley. Religion is sometimes described by its atheist detractors as a total if not totalitarian ideology. And for some believers, that's what it seems to be. A revelation already perfect and complete, a truth already fully possessed, a light that is never turned off. Richard Carney's idea of anatheism incorporates doubt, darkness, and delay into our experience of the divine. He finds inspiration for this idea in two figures whose thought was shaped in the dark night of fascism and war, Paul Ricoeur and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Ricoeur, who died in 2005, was a French philosopher and Carney's friend and teacher. Carney studied with him in Paris in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Bonhoeffer was a German Protestant pastor and theologian 
who was imprisoned by the Nazis during the Second World War and vindictively executed less than a month before the war's end. In letters written from prison and later published, Bonhoeffer explored the possibility of faith after religion. The notion of post-religious faith is actually mentioned by both Bonhoeffer and Ricoeur. I think for both of them, the war was absolutely central. In fact, for the whole idea of anatheism, the war has been very crucial. Because of the disillusionment brought about by Hiroshima, the gulags, Auschwitz, one can't believe again in the same way. You know, The god of theodicy, the omnipotent, the omni-god, the alpha god who's going to come to our rescue, who has a plan for us all, a providence. I mean, who can believe in that? As Elie Wiesel said, that god died in the hangman's noose in Auschwitz. So what's left? For Bonhoeffer, who was a Protestant pastor, a Lutheran pastor, it was a faith that was a renunciation of traditional religion. So we call it a post-religious faith. Uh, Ricoeur picks up on the term, and he survived, I think, eight years of imprisonment, six years maybe, five, six years of imprisonment during the war, and wrote after the war about this post-religious faith. So it was a way for Ricoeur of saying, look, we live in a post-war world. We've experienced the horrors that have obliged us almost to give up the idea of the omnipotent God who can intervene in history and work everything out for us. He didn't do it and we can't expect him to do it again. So in that realm of post-religion, if we understand religion in the sense of the traditional institutions predicated upon some kind of omnipotent God, then what we may return to is a kind of a faith that leaves that religion behind us. But we have to go through atheism to get there. We have to acknowledge the disenchantment of the world. And Marx, Freud and Nietzsche, who recur called the three masters of suspicion, were absolutely central here in declaring dead the god of power, Nietzsche, disguised will to power, the god of censorship, consolation, false consolation, of course, of Freud and illusion, Freud, and then uh, Marx, the god who oppresses the poor, the opium of the people, take them all on board. And then if there's something left after the three hounds of suspicion have gnawed away at all our illusions, then let's see what that is. And that for Recurb was then the possibility of a return to what he called a second faith. Leaving behind the naive first faith, going through the atheistic moment, you then return to a new possibility of faith that's post-religious. But that does not mean that it's a private kind of spiritual new age search where you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's a faith that, of course, is then very open to retrieving what is perhaps best in your own religious tradition. So post-religious faith means very often a faith that then can return to religion, but in a way that relives and rethinks and reimagines the religion differently. On this anatheistic mm. journey, mm. does the idea of what God is change? The or perhaps that we can't use the language of is at all? The language of God, of what God is, does change, but it's always been changing. In the sense that to describe God as a being is already to describe God as something that we can name, 
define, categorize, and control, and say, well, we have it, and then it becomes kind of an ex it can become an exclusive prerogative and possession. We have it; nobody else has it. So outside the walls, no salvation. That idea obviously has to be abandoned. But then, if you loosen God as a being into a becoming, or what I call a possibilizing, then God is always that posse, that that invitation to be and to become, which cannot become unless we respond to the invitation. To the, I mean, you get the message of God is a stranger who knocks on the door. You get this again and again and again in the Gospels. But unless you open the door, nothing can happen. If Mary doesn't say yes to Gabriel, it doesn't happen. There is no Christianity. If Abraham and Sarah don't say yes to the strangers in the desert, there is no Judaism. So the sense that God is a being somehow makes God into a thing that we can think we know. So if you define God as a being, then you've got to put attributes on God. And then those attributes, which of course are anthropocentric, anthropomorphic, they come from us. They then can become institutionalized. And that leads ultimately to religious war because one community's set of properties and predicates for that being are going to be different to another's. So I would say God is not a being. God is a multiplicity and a multiplication without end of beings, human, animal, and divine, that can never rest as a being. Richard Carney, throughout his writings, has argued that there is plenty of warrant in the Bible for a view of God as something other than a being, for a view of God as a verb rather than a noun, as Northrop Fry sometimes said. Carney has cited the words from the Hebrew scriptures that God addresses to Moses from the burning bush. When Moses says, If the people ask who has sent me, what shall I say is your name? The answer, according to the King James Bible, is, I am who I am. But some modern translators have preferred, I shall be who I shall be, which Carney interprets as, What I will be depends on you. In the Christian New Testament, he draws attention to the many passages in which Jesus refuses to be pinned down. When asked who he is, he answers, Who do you say that I am? In the scene of the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, when Jesus is revealed as a divine being, glowing like the sun and conversing with Moses and Elijah in eternity, he instructs the three disciples who have seen this vision to say nothing about it. The divine is a flickering rather than a constant light, a coming and going. In Eastern Orthodox portrayals of God as a trinity, the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are often portrayed as engaged in a dance in which each gives way to the other, a kind of eternal after you. It's the dance of the double A, you know? The adieu as come towards me, come towards God, but also let go of God. Say hello, say goodbye. And that's repeated again and again and again when people think they know God and have God. Say the transfiguration. They see God, God becomes transfigured into this whiteness. And then the disciples who are there want to 
go and tell everybody about this and create a temple, put up a tent. And he says, no, you say nothing to anybody, which of course they didn't obey, otherwise we wouldn't know the story. But also if you go to Mount Tabor today, you'll see a big cathedral standing there. So he was constantly disobeyed, but again and again and again, he would appear and disappear. And each time that he appeared, say post-Paschally, you know, the so-called risen God, it's never recognized when he's first seen. Then he's recognized and then he's gone. So there is something about the double adieu there of come towards me, but let me go. Come towards me, let me go. And that's, I think, what is retrieved in that wonderful image. And it is a poetic image because that's all we have for the divine. Theological and philosophical concepts of the divine as a being are just poetic images that have forgotten that they are poetic images and have, as it were, relinquished the art of poeticizing, which is what religion is. That doesn't mean it's a fiction an illusion and untruth. On the contrary, it means that the best way of getting to the truth of religion is precisely by keeping it poetically and imaginatively alive. If there's too much there, we have them, or her, or it, then you've got idolatry. If there's too much absence, then you've got skepticism, cynicism, materialism. I mean, there's a hundred words for it, isn't there? A lack of imaginative faith. So, I mean, I have a lot of time for open atheists, and I think there's an open atheism built into, and an open theism built into anatheism. It contains both. Because the wonderful thing, I mean, as Levinas said about Judaism, the great gift of Judaism to the world was atheism. That is to say, the refusal of a, of a natural religion where we were all fused into one thing. And suddenly there's a separating out where we can have a free relationship with the other. And God is the name for the absolute other with whom we can have a free relationship. In the traditional religions, the, the rituals, the cults, the sacrificial expiatory, periodic bloodletting and so on, made it so that there were no free persons. There was no person involved. There had to be separation. For separation, there had to be atheism from the old notion of the totalizing being, uh, sacrificial being. And then suddenly we are free to be ethically responsible in a way that we never were before. So an open theism and an open atheism are built into anatheism. And for that reason, there has to be the double A of now I'm gone, atheism, now I'm here, theism. This alternation of presence and absence, now I'm here, now I'm gone, makes the experience of the divine impossible to predict or contain. God explodes from his hiding place, says the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. For Richard Carney, this means, among other things, that the sacred is also the secret. Secret, secreta, has the same root as sacred. And even in the ritual of the mass, there is a moment of secreta where the things are set apart. The materials are set apart in the sacred moment is a secret moment. And it comes from the Greek, it's translated actually from the Greek mysterion, hence the word mystery. But Mysterion was also a blindfold that was put on initiates as they went into religious ritual because they didn't know where they were going. There was a sense in which they were going from what they thought they knew, what was familiar to them, to something strange and unfamiliar. 
So the sacred is that which leads into the secret, which leads into that which surprises us and blindsides us in a way that puts limits on our arrogance and our pride and our sense that we can do anything, you know, because modern exclusive secular humanism has given itself a certain story that it's moving towards perfection and will control the world. And I think that's led to Stalinism, it's led to gross commercial capitalism, uh, fascism, you know, this, this sense of unbridled human power and the blind belief in the inevitability of progress. So the idea that there is something sacred that is different from us, unfamiliar, that can set a limit, it's a limit to what we can know and touch and possess. So in those two senses, I'm keen to preserve the notion of the sacred. Richard Carney's new word, anatheism, describes a journey which begins in secure religious conviction, passes through its loss, and then returns to a more tentative and chastened belief. This is the trajectory on one level of Western culture, from a universal Christianity, through the purgation of the Enlightenment and the emergence of secular humanism, and on into the riot of contemporary religiosities and spiritualities. It also describes an intellectual history, as modern philosophy has passed through atheism and on into the new dialogue with religion that one sees in current European philosophers. And for Richard Carney, it also describes a more personal journey. I would say growing up in Ireland, where I saw Protestants and Catholics killing each other in the name of religion, certainly prevented me from continuing to believe in any uncomplicated, unproblematic way in my particular faith, which was that of Irish Catholicism. And when I went to study with the Benedictines in a monastery, a boarding school, uh, one of the first things that the monk who was teaching us said to us was, in Christian doctrine class, I'm going to give you, as your assignment, the following text by Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, Simon de Beauvoir, Forbach and Bertrand Russell. These are the best arguments I know against the existence of God. Now go off and read them. And if any of you still believe in the possibility of God's existence, come back to me and we can start doing Christian doctrine. Uh, some came back, some didn't. <laughs> but for me, it was an education in the importance of atheism for any kind of genuine faith. And that atheism I discovered also in, in, in one of these classes, is something that Christ himself experienced on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Christ can have that atheistic moment of there is no God. I'm abandoned. This is a world of suffering, cruelty, torture, injustice. If Christ can have that before then saying anatheistically, unto thee I commend my spirit, then we can all have it. And atheism is something to be cherished if it's an open, genuine, existential cry from the heart which it was in Christ's case and in many, many people's cases. And I know in my own experience, my uncle, Morris, was a prisoner of war in a, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in Burma. And he was imprisoned for, I think, four years. He was a doctor. There were two doctors out of a brigade, I think, of 520. By the end of the war, just as the Allies were 
liberating the island, there were maybe a dozen left, including my uncle Morris and another doctor. So they had um, stolen some food and as punishment, they were put into these huts. No food or water, heat, absolutely debilitating. So my uncle Morris's best friend, the other doctor, was taken out and he was he was strung up, crucified on the barbed wire. And he was left hanging there for two days as my uncle was watching him. And then eventually they came to my uncle and let him out of his hut. They gave him a bowl of iodine and said, go to your friend. So he approached his friend with a bowl of iodine, assuming that he was they were going to cut him down and he would bathe his wounds. But they said to him, pour the iodine down his throat. So my uncle refused to do it. And they said, well, we're calling out the next prisoner in line. He will do it. And afterwards, we will put you up. And the same thing would be done to you. So anyway, my uncle still refused to do it. And actually, because they were both doctors, they were not killed. But the rest of the prisoners were. He finally returned to London, where his parents had emigrated. And he sat down with his parents, my mother and my aunt, and he told them what had happened. And he then went around the house and took down every crucifix from every room and said, no God can exist after what I've seen. He was talking, of course, about his crucified friend. And so I used to have these discussions with Uncle Morris. He never spoke about that incident again. I learned of it from my mother. Never spoke about it again, but I saw in my uncle an anguished, pained, first-hand testimony to the death of God. And so any theism, any belief, any faith, any religion after that kind of experience, and my uncle Morris was one of millions who experienced such things, and there are things as bad going on in the world today as we know. After that, what forgiveness, what belief, what faith, it almost has to be as hard as that. You know, we have to think through that before we can go back to a real embrace of the sacred as the surprising and acknowledge that God is powerless, that the genuinely holy person is utterly powerless and weak because we're so used to the omni-God, you know, the omnipotent God, the alpha God. To let go of that is very hard for us and to see God as the suffering servant. But that there is a power of the powerless, which you find in Gandhi, which you find in Martin Luther King, which you find in John Hume in Northern Ireland, in Mandela, in Tutu. And that can move mountains. It, it's a power that is much more powerful than the power of armies. But it is not the power of omnipotence that can intervene and smite your enemies. It doesn't work like that. So there's a lot of rethinking that has to go on. But I think there's kind of a faith at the level of human relations, human perceptions and so on that we were talking about earlier. That's a sacramentality towards the strange in the open. And that is operating already at that level. Do you know what I mean? One doesn't have to go through philosophy courses and sort of histories of the Second World War to appreciate that God is in the simple things and is the stranger, the widow and the orphan. That, that's something that's in our experience already. But our culture of power and fear does so much to prevent us seeing it that sometimes we need to hear the stories of the Uncle Morris 
And we need to hear the stories of Freud, Marx and Nietzsche to shatter our easy notions of what theism and atheism is so that we can overcome the fear. Because, I mean, that's what Christ says, you know, perfect love is overcoming fear. And fear is what blinds us to the strange. Atheism, in Richard Carney's view, is a necessary moment in any relationship with the strangeness, the wildness, the mystery that the word God tries to name and to tame. I pray God to rid me of God, says the medieval theologian and mystic Meister Eckhart. His thought is that the God who is named, known, and possessed is already an idol that must again and again be unmasked. But how is the true God to be distinguished from the idol? the god of love from the celestial tyrant who smites his enemies on the cheekbone and breaks the teeth of the ungodly. Carney's answer is the art of interpretation, sometimes known as hermeneutics, after the Greek messenger god Hermes. When God, in the book of Genesis, demands that Abraham sacrifice his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah, we have to ask, who is speaking? Religions come to us as stories. And stories, he says finally, require interpretation. Every single one of those stories is told by a human being who tells it from his or her point of view, which will automatically be a mistranslation as well as a translation of the divine. Because as soon as we translate the strange, the language of the stranger into our language, we're betraying it. We're betraying it. In the double sense of betraying it as expressing it, it's when I betray my feelings, right? My face betrays my feelings, but also every translation is a mistranslation. There's always a human that enters into it. And so we have to, the challenge is precisely in sacred texts to unravel what is sacred from what is unsacred. There's no pure text, none. I mean, look at Abraham, Mount Moriah, he goes up, two voices, one says, kill your son Isaac, the other says, don't kill. Abraham is going through a hermeneutic process of saying there's a sacred voice here that says love and there's another voice that I thought was sacred that said sacrifice your child. So he's saying, okay, the tradition that I've inherited of child sacrifice, an expiatory victim, is one that I'm now turning away from in order to turn towards the genuine God who was already there calling out to be recognized but it got mixed up with child sacrifice and the God of omnipotence and power and expiation. So if that's true of Abraham on Mount Moriah and of almost every sacred text, that's precisely because it is human. Everything is, as Charles Taylor says, you know, hermeneutically messy. And that means that church is messy, tradition is messy, religion is messy, belief is messy. But do you want to give it all up and sacrifice what is genuinely sacred and sacramental in it? for the sake of a very, very reductive, narrowed universe? Or do you want to accept that challenge and say, this is hard work, but community is communication, conversation, with a, as recurs as a conflict of interpretations as to what's going on in the text. I mean, that's what I love about the rabbinical Talmudic tradition. There, you know, as Rashi, the great um, Talmudic uh, mystic and scholar said, a Jewish uh, mystic and scholar said, there were at least 10 ways of reading every line in the Bible. I mean, that's putting it mildly. And, and, and that's its richness. So the act, faith is an act of translation. 
which always involves mistranslation at the same time. That's why it's a wager. But to take as verbatim what the Pope says, what Luther says, what Calvin says, what Jesus says, because we don't know what Jesus says. He wrote something on the ground to stop a woman being stoned to death for adultery. We don't know what that was. And everything else was recorded, you know, 20 years, 100 years, 200 years after his death. And thanks be to God, there are four versions, at least, and that they don't all concur because we realize these are human reports on what this very holy man said. So the easy thing to do is to give it all up or to embrace it all in total. The hard thing to do is to rethink it anatheistically, giving voice to the atheistic critique of what is corrupt, perverse, and unjust in religion and in the tradition, but also giving an ear to what is genuinely liberating, just and sacramental. On Ideas, you've listened to the first episode of our series, After Atheism, New Perspectives on God and Religion. Our guest was Richard Carney, professor of philosophy at Boston College and the author of Anatheism, Returning to God After God. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Liz Nage is our webmaster. For information on upcoming Ideas programs, visit our website at cbc.ca slash ideas, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You'll find links to a podcast of today's program. And you can now join us on Facebook. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next. <laughs>